morning. They're all here. Let's turn to uh, the book of James. I hope everyone was able to take a look at the uh, book of James this week and uh, study <clears throat> and uh, were able to outline it. As we uh, mentioned last week, um, we are, as we study through the book of Acts, we want to take a look at each uh, New Testament letter in the order in which they were written, and to, we want to um, do a quick survey of that book just to whet your appetite. This is not an in-depth study of the book by any stretch of the imagination, but it just gives you a quick look at a book, um, and a, a, hopefully it'll give you a desire to really dig in and to study the book more deeply yourself. So let's take a look at James chapter 1. And uh, I'll read through the <clears throat> portion of the chapter here. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let pati but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower fails or falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now I'm going to stop there because I believe that's where the first break occurs in uh, James, apart from the greeting. The greeting is just um, the first verse, but I think the first section in, in James chapter 1 ends at the end of verse 12. Some of your Bibles actually stop at the end of verse 11, and they have a, chapter or have a paragraph break there. Um, I don't agree with that. I think that the paragraph break really is, uh, starts at verse 13. So in this section... We want to talk about faith. In fact, the whole book of James really has to do with faith, pra the practical outworking, the demonstration of faith in day-to-day -day life. And so the first part here really has to do with faith that endures trials. And in this section, we're really talking about trials that produce Christ-likeness in us. The first thing we learn from this section is that trials are inevitable. Consider it all joy, he says, when you fall into various trials. It's not if, it's when. You will have trials in the Christian life. Some trials are beyond our control, such as famines, droughts, even persecution. Some come from personal disappointments or tragedies, uh, broken promises. You might be hit with a sickness, physical handicaps, pain, or physical suffering. You may suffer emotionally through sorrow death of loved ones, being forsaken, or even being maligned by friends and family. Trials come in a variety of forms, in a variety of ways, but the Lord can harness those and allow them in our lives for His purposes 
to, for our good and for his glory. Jesus spoke this way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. J James really is keying into what the Lord said there, and that is that when trials come, and particularly when trials are suffered for the sake of the Lord, or for, for Christ's sake or for the gospel's sake, there is a reward. There is, there is a future. There is a hope even in the midst of trials. And uh, that's what we want to look at next. Trials have a purpose. Trials are divinely sent. There is no trial that we go through that first does not pass through the loving hands of the Lord Jesus. We see that very clearly in the book of Job where uh, Satan wanted to bring about destruct the destruction of Job and it first had to go through the Lord. And so if we are facing a trial in life, Know this, that the Lord who does good and has your good in mind has allowed this trial to take place in your life. And he can harness that trial, that, that uh, um, difficulty that you're going through, and he can harness even suffering for his purposes and for your good. You know, really, in a sense, trials are meant to expose our faith, to uncover our faith, if you will, and to show its true colors. Trials produce patience, we read in this passage, and endurance. So many people quit. So many people are quick to quit. And the Lord wants us to endure. He wants us to be patient. And, to, and that kind of patience and that kind of endurance results in spiritual maturity. So what is our response in the midst of trials? How should we react if we are facing a trial? There's something that we are to be joyful. Joyful in trials. <laughs> Hard. We don't usually think of that as the first thing to do or the first reaction to have in the midst of a trial. And yet that is what he says. My brethren, count it all joy. It, it isn't some kind of a morbid preoccupation with, with suffering. Really what he's talking about here is he's saying, look, there's an end in view. There's something at the end of the trial that is beneficial. And it's worth going through it for your good and for, for God's glory. There is a way to endure. If you think that way, there is a way to um, endure it. It says, when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life in verse 12. Maybe God is at work in your life right now. Maybe there is some character deficiency in you. Maybe there's something about the way you react under pressure, in, in problems, or with other people, or towards other people, and God is at work chiseling away the, the, the stuff that doesn't need to be there in your life so that you might come out as gold. Count it all joy that he loves you enough to take the pains to allow a trial to come into your life to conform you to the image of his son. There is something that we are to know. What is that? That God is at work in our lives. If you are suffering a trial, especially for the sake of Christ or for the sake of the gospel, know that God is at work in your life. In other words, you can have a sign over your head, I'm still under construction. We are. Someone once said, the same hammer that shatters glass forges steel. What are you? Are you glass or are you steel? Only a test will prove it. So since this is true, there's something we need to do, and that is to cooperate. 
We need to cooperate with God. Let it have its perfect work, he says. Next, there is something that we must seek in the midst of a trial. You know what the, the first question that I usually ask when I'm faced with something, some difficult thing? First question, three letters. Why? That's exactly right. Why? Why is this happening? Why is it happening now? Why is it happening to me? Okay, we have all these whys. Why, why, why? So there's something we must seek. Why do we ask why? It's because we don't know. We don't have the wisdom to know what God is doing. And so God encourages us here to seek him out, to find out, to seek wisdom. When we're knocked off our feet, it's time to get on our knees. We really do lack wisdom, don't we? We often, Chris and I often pray and we say, Lord, I don't know why this is taking place, but I know that you're in it and I know it's for our good. Show us, teach us, help us to understand what it is that we need to learn from this trial from your perspective. And when we understand what the Lord is doing in our lives, we're then able to allow the trials to run their course. Our tendency is to try to cut short a trial. You can do that, but you may have to suffer it again. <laughs> it's not worth it. Okay? So allow the Lord to have his, his way in your life. And so we're encouraged to pray for wisdom. And the Lord promises to give us an answer if we truly want the answer. If we truly want it. There is something also that we must accept, and that is that God is sovereign. Here he talks about a rich brother and a poor brother. And uh, God has allowed us to be in our particular circumstances in life. Some are rich, some are poor. God decides what family we're born into. He decides the color of your hair, the color of your eyes. You say, well, genetics does that. No, the Lord really does that. You know, he really does. He allows a person to have, perhaps in their mind, a deformity. He allows a person to be born with some kind of disability. He allows it all. The poor Christian here is told to rejoice. Rejoice? Glory in his exaltation. What is he saying here? I really believe that he's saying, look, from, if you're a poor person and a Christian, you've got it all. You've got it all. You've got everything you need. Your riches are in Christ. You are in him. You're in the beloved. And every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is yours in Christ Jesus. You've got it all. You're going to leave anything you don't have behind anyway. And that's also true of the rich man. It says the rich man who suffers a trial, maybe he's stripped of his riches. He's stripped of everything that he owns. And, it, and if, if that happens, he's really better off. Then he can focus on serving one master instead of two because you can't serve God in money. The scripture says that. Eventually the day will come when the rich man and the poor man will die. They came into this life with nothing and it is absolutely certain that they're going to leave the same way. They're going to have nothing when they go. They're going to leave it all behind. They come in empty-handed and they go out the same way. But if the rich man lived only for his riches, he will perish the same way as his riches James says here. There's something also that we, um, for us to look forward to, and that is the crown of life. Do you know who the crown of life is promised to? Martyrs. Martyrs. The crown of life. What greater trial could you face in life than to be killed for your faith? Could there be a greater trial? Interesting thing here is that the Lord is promising those who go through trials well the crown of life, the same crown that he's giving to a martyr. That's amazing. 
What applies to the smallest trials of our life are just as applicable to the harshest trial. What happens to the man who goes through a trial well? It says he is blessed. How happy is the man who endures temptation. And he's promised a future reward too. Okay, next section is um, verse 12, uh, verse 13, pardon me. And it says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift uh, is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, I'm going to stop there for, for now. I think the break actually takes place at the end of verse 15, um, but I want to keep moving in the, in the passage here as well. Here we have a shift of subject. The first one, it, um, in verse 13, it talks about temptation. The word is used. And here in verse 13, tempted is used again. There's, there's a difference, however, between temptation in the sense of a trial, which is what we talked about at the beginning, and temptation, which is an encouragement to sin or to, to uh, uh, fall away from the Lord. So we've moved from trials that come our way to conform us to the image of Christ to temptations that draw us away from Christ. Once again, the scripture says when we are tempted, not if. We're going to face temptation in the evil sense as well. So let's take a look at the temptation. First of all, the first thing we must know about temptation is that God has nothing to do with it. Okay? He does have something to do with the trials. He allows them for our good, for his glory. But for, as far as temptation to sin is concerned, he has absolutely nothing to do with it. It is impossible for God to tempt anyone or to be tempted to do evil. So who's responsible? You say, well, the devil made me do it. Uh, that's not what it says. Okay? The te we're, we, our, te our temptation is to pass the buck to somebody else, not be responsible for our own um, sin. But that's not what the Lord says here. We are fully responsible for temptations. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Jesus said, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. It's from within. Instead of expelling these thoughts, so often we nourish them. We baby them. And our evil desires become pregnant. And it has a baby. And that, the name of that baby is sin. And sin has a tribe of its own which brings about death. You've heard the poem before. It says, sow a thought and reap an act. Sow an act and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. The best way to handle temptation is the exact opposite of the way you handle a trial. Trials, we are to endure. Temptations, we are to flee, okay? It's not always the best thing in the world for us. It's not always healthy for us to escape a trial. But it is always right to escape temptation. 
it is always right to run. We need to be like Joseph. I think Bill used to say, and put a few healthy miles between the temptations and ourselves. The answer to trials and temptations is really found in the last part of the uh, chapter 1, and that is the Word of God, verses 16 through 27. Here he talks about a number of things. Um, we don't have time to go into it in great detail because of we've got to get through the whole uh, book, but we don't have to dig very deep in the book of James to find practical application. It's right there on the surface. And he gives us the recipe for growth. Act on what you hear. So, my beloved brethren, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. These are all um, commands, very quick and rapid succession. And we are to, to listen or to act on what we hear. The next thing is to change what you already know is wrong in your life. He talks about the man who looks in the mirror. Now, I did that just before coming in here. And I didn't like what I saw. And so the easiest way for me to deal with it was to walk away from the mirror and just leave it behind. As long as I can't see myself, I'm okay. And you say, well, that's just foolish. That's absolutely foolish. We have to look at you. <laughs> that's why I'm up here and you're in the audience. <laughs> you have to look at it. It bothers you, doesn't it? Like, how could he stand up there with his tie backwards? How can he have one sleeve down and one sleeve up? He's preaching. How can he have a dirty face like that? And I have to ask the question of myself and, uh, and of you as well. How can we go to the Word of God and see plainly the things that need to change in our lives and walk away from it and never change? We do it every day. What you're seeing here is described here in the book of James. We do that all the time. We walk away. I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to see myself that way. It's, it's too ugly. Yeah, sin is ugly. But if we would stop and we would change, we would, we would repent or turn to the Lord, you'd find that he will help you through it all. Don't let God's word go in one ear and out the other. I think it's one of the greatest problems in modern Christianity. We know a lot and we act on very little. But, you're, but really what James is getting at here, I believe, is that your works are a demonstration of really what you believe. What you do is really what you believe. All right, let's take a look at James chapter 2. James 1 tells us that faith will be tested. It tells us that we will be tempted. And it gives us the weapon we can use to overcome, that is the word of God. But here, James, in fact, all the way through here, he's trying to get us out of the realm of the theoretical and get us into the practical realm of living uh, for Christ day by day, putting shoe leather on our faith. One of the things that he talks about here in uh, verse, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, has to do with the, the, the issue of favoritism or partiality. Um, and in it, he's really saying, he said, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Well, the faith, what is the faith? It's the body of truth that we believe. We believe what we have here in our hand, the Bible. We believe the, uh, the, the, the tenets of the scripture. We believe um, 
the things that the Lord Jesus Christ taught. We believe the teaching of the New Testament. We believe what the apostles taught us. That is the faith, is really what he's talking about here. He's saying, now, you say you have faith. You believe the truth of God's word. And yet you show partiality to people. It's incompatible. That's what he's saying here. And he illustrates this by... Um, uh, by telling the story about a person who comes in with a three-piece suit laden with jewelry, and we say, oh, sir, come right here. Sit in the prime spot right here. You can sit right here. Everybody can see you, and, and how important we must be that you've you know, graced us with your presence, and, and you present this person as being some kind of a person above all the rest. And then somebody like me comes in, you know, maybe a street person comes in, and we say, you know what, you can sit back in the corner. Better yet, there's a room down the hall here. We can just put you in over there. And we... We make these distinctions um, by people. We judge them by what they look like. We judge them on the outward appearance, not by what the man is. And so in this illustration, the, the church favored the rich man over the poor. Well, James exposes this as uh, being wrong, and he, he gives four reasons why it is wrong here. First is in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? First of all, it's theologically wrong. Prejudice is inconsistent with who God is and how he works. By the way, who does God choose? Is it the rich and the famous? Do you see the uh, Fortune 500 coming to the Lord in droves? I don't. But the poor hear him gladly. Those who are, in fact, it says in 1 Corinthians, there are not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things, the weak things, the base things, the things that are not. And we should follow God's lead in this regard. Second, it's logically wrong. Um, in verse 6, it's, it's really the rich ones who characteristically oppose Christianity. They are the ones who oppose Christians. They were the ones who were dragging the Christians into courts and into prisons and sending them to the martyr's fire. Third, it's morally wrong. Why is it morally wrong? Well, because the rich not only drag Christians into court and oppose them, but in their speech they are usually blasphemous as well. And they despise you and they despise the name by which you are called. Fourth, it's biblically wrong. Partiality is sin. It's sin because it's against the teaching of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The law and the prophets can be summed up in one phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And when you show partiality, you are not showing your neighbor love, are you? So if you break this great commandment, the greatest commandment, then you've broken the whole law. What should our response be? Well, I think it's found in verse Verses 12 and 13. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Our talk and our walk should correspond. In other words, James says, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't despise the lowly, but instead show mercy to them. Thus fulfilling the law of liberty. Mercy over it says mercy triumphs over judgment. This might be a clue into how we will be judged, or we may be judged. If we have shown mercy, we will be shown mercy. If we have not shown mercy, perhaps none will be shown to us. True faith, uh, verses 14 through 26, this is the 
part of the book of James that has caused most of the trouble down through the centuries. James is now going to tell us something that uh, seems to contradict the teaching of Paul. The book of Romans and the book of Galatians are strong, very strong books on the truth of justification by faith. Faith alone, plus nothing. Faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us, plus nothing else. Works do not enter into the picture at all, as far as Paul's teaching uh, is concerned when he's talking about it this way. Yet James says here, faith without works is dead. Ouch. So how do you reconcile these seeming, this seeming contradiction? Well, first of all, Paul writes about how a person becomes a Christian. James is looking after salvation. What is the evidence that that person is truly saved? Paul speaks of the root. James speaks of the fruit. So we are not justified by works when it comes to salvation, how we get saved, how we come into a right relationship with God. Our works don't enter into the picture at all. Jesus Christ finished the work on Calvary's tree. The work was done, complete. And we can't even add a portion of a fraction of 1% to it in our works. Can't do it. Our works account for nothing. But the same verses that talk about salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ also talk about works. It says this. In fact, the, the famous verse that we always quote is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith, and we emphasize, not of works. And we almost stop and, and point that out to people, especially as you're witnessing to them. Not of works. You cannot work your way to heaven. You can't do good deeds to get you to heaven. And we emphasize and emphasize and emphasize that. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. And we stop. But that's not where the verse starts. That's not where the passage ends. We've put a, an exclamation mark where there's only a, a, a period and a, and a comma maybe. But it goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wow. So we're not saved. We don't come into a right relationship with God by doing good works. But once we are saved, our good works follow. And those good works are works that God had prepared before you were ever born. He prepared them beforehand that you might walk in them, that you might live a life that is pleasing to him. And um, he's got some work for you, some task for you, some job for you, and he's ordained that you should walk in it. Are you doing it? Justified by work. So what kind of faith do you have? Is it an intellectual faith? Verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? But does, but does not have works. Can faith save him? Um, I think we like to add the word, can that faith or that kind of faith save him? Can a say-so faith save a person? Well, you know, in this culture, it's quite easy to say that you're a Christian. It's very easy, actually. How many people do you know who say they are Christians, and yet there's absolutely no evidence in their life whatsoever? Yeah? Almost everybody. Yeah. Years ago, we planted a tree in our backyard when we lived in uh, Penn Avenue. And it was a peach tree. At least that's what it said. And I 
know that there are certain trees that are very similar to each other in appearance. But we planted this peach tree because we wanted to have peaches. I like peaches. And so we planted it, and there were leaves on it. And there was even a sign on it that said, peach tree. So I felt like I was in pretty, you know, I, I, was, I was very hopeful anyway. Says it was a peach tree, it must be a peach tree. Even though it said it was a peach tree, I really didn't know until the peaches came forth and were able to bite into that first one and say, okay, this is a peach tree. We're good. I know many people say they're Christians, but there's no fruit in their life. They say they're Christians. They might even hang a sign on them themselves, wear a T-shirt that says, I'm a Christian. They might have a fish sticker on the back of their car. They might have some other kind of Christian icon somewhere. And there are signs. That they're, they're at least saying they're Christians. But if there's no fruit in their life, are they really Christians? Someone asked if you were taken to court on the charges of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Ouch. If there are no works present in our lives and yet we continue to, be, to claim to be a Christian, can that kind of faith save us? I should say not. That's what James is saying here. Now, James illustrates his point, and it's really clever. He says, suppose you have enough food and clothes for, your, for yourself, your family, and maybe even enough to feed a whole army, or at least a good size army. And somebody comes knocking at your door, or you just know somebody in your life. And they say, you know, we're really having a tough time this week, and we can't make ends meet. And I mean, there's no moral failure in this person. They just, they're just having a struggle. They can't get things together. And you go, oh, I'm really sad to hear that. So you're hungry. Yeah, we're really hungry. And you can't feed your, you can't clothe your kids. With, no, they're, you know, all in rags at this point. I'm really sorry. Let me pray about that, would you? I'll bring it up at the prayer meeting for you. And um, you, you don't reach into your po pocket and you don't give them anything to meet their needs. And you say to them, basically, be warmed and filled. And you do nothing to care for the needs of their body. How does that demonstrate God's love and the principles of true faith to them? In 1 John 3, it says this, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. What kind of faith do you have? Is it a dead faith? James asked that question in 17 and 18. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If works are not the outcome of your faith, then your faith is dead. Everybody should know whether you have faith or not. It should be so obvious by the things that you do, the things that you say. Oh, yeah, now we're coming to the things that we say. I'll get to that in a minute. What kind of faith do you have? Is it a demonic faith? Demonic faith? What are you talking about? Well, James asks the question about, he says, do you believe in God? He says, yeah, of course I believe in God. I'm not a heathen after all. Well, it puts you in good company. You're on the same level as demons. Wow. He says, even the demons believe, but they tremble. Okay? A person, many people who claim to be saved or claim to know God, they don't tremble at God. They don't tremble at his word. They have no fear of God in their eyes at all. But even the demons who believe in God or believe there is a God, and, and quite honestly, their theology is probably a lot better than ours as far as their orthodoxy is concerned. They know the truth in that sense. 
Are we any better than, that, than they? But they're not saved. That's the point. What kind of faith do you have? Is it like Abraham's faith? Is it like Rahab's faith? That's the kind of faith that shines under the testing of life. Now, Abraham, by the way, this is an interesting argument. Abraham, he, James is using him as an argument for um, the necessity of works for justification. And yet, as we look at Abraham's life, and you look at the chronology of what took place in his life, God took him out one day, and he said, Hey, Abraham, you see all the stars up there? He says, Yeah, I see them. He says, So will your children be. You're going to have as many children as there are stars. And he says, Okay, you're God. You said it. I believe it. And he was justified. It said God reckoned to him righteousness at that point. He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's when he was saved. That's when he was justified by faith. But he wasn't justified by works at that point. Justification by works came later. When God said to him, Abraham, you know that son that I promised you? Yeah. Your only son whom you love, Isaac? Yes. I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. Because I said so. That's all. That's, he didn't tell him. He didn't even say that. But, but Abraham, it says, he rose up early the next morning, and he got everything together, and he went up there, and he went to offer Isaac his son. And he was getting ready to slay his son when God stopped him midstream. But it says in the scripture that Abraham believed God, and he believed that, God, God, that Isaac was the promised son. And he believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. He invented resurrection. It's great. And that act of faith, now, we would call it attempted murder. But it was an act of faith because he was obeying God. He was listening to what God had said. And he said, God, I trust you so much. I trust you implicitly. Isn't that what faith is? Trusting God? That I am willing to take my son's life because I know that it is through him. Because you promised. And you will raise him up from the dead if necessary. That's faith. And he talks about Rahab in the same way. That Rahab, she, she just heard about what God did. And her heart changed and she believed God. And she was so uh, um, in faith with God, <laughs> I don't know how to say it, that she was willing to turn against her own country, her own people, and um, prove the reality of her profession. All right, let's take a look at chapter 3. The danger of the tongue. In chapter 2, we learn that true faith can be seen by godly actions. True faith can be seen. In this chapter, we're going to learn that true faith can be heard as well. First of all, he says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Greater condemnation. Um, why is that true? I think it's because of the greater influence that a teacher has um, on his students. The Bible says there is death and there is life in the power of the tongue. It is possible to use this instrument in my mouth to accomplish great things for God. It is also possible to use a tongue to stir people up into such frenzy that they participate in such atrocities as took place in Nazi Germany in World War II. That was the power of the tongue. A teacher comes into stricter judgment because he knows better. He should know more than his students. 
More light means more responsibility. So then he starts, and he just goes through illustration after illustration here about the tongue. The first one he talks about is the bit and the bridle. It, a bit, of course, a small piece of metal you stick in the horse's mouth, and with it, you can direct the whole body of a horse. Just a tiny piece of metal. I was telling the kids, we were talking to the kids about this this week, and I said, now imagine a horse sitting out here in my, in my living room, okay? And it's a big animal, and they're tough, they're strong. And I said, now I'm a, you know, I'm not skinny by any means, you know? And uh, so I, I'm not a good match for the horse, but I'm gonna give it a try anyway. And I went running across the room and I dove against this pretend horse and it didn't budge. And I ended up, you know, almost falling on the floor from my attempt. And I said, I can't even move it. I, and I'm a lot bigger than a bit, but I can't move it. But a little bit, and you can move the whole body of a horse. Ships, small rudder in proportion to the size of the ship. And yet that whole vessel will turn by, by a movement of that rudder. Someone said the tongue is but three inches long, yet it can kill a man six feet high. Then he talks about fire. See how a great a forest a little fire kindles. Think of the damage somebody's tongue can do. Look at the destruction of another person's character by the wagging of this instrument. Think of destroyed friendships due to the fire of the tongue. Think of your private conversations and how often you tear down believers rather than build them up. These are people for whom Christ died. And yet we use our tongue to tear them down. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Matthew Henry said, The devil himself is expressly called a liar, a murderer, an accuser of the brethren. And, in, and whenever men's tongues are employed in any of these ways, they are set on fire of hell. He then talks about the illustration of animals. All types of animals have been tamed. You know, I've seen a lady skiing on the back of two porpoises. I saw a man once riding on the snout of a killer whale. The whale actually came up from underneath him. He was in the same pool. And he caught his feet. His feet were over the top of the snout like that. And the whale went up, and the whale went one way, and the man went the other way. I thought, wow, to train a whale to do that. I've seen an elephant standing on one foot. I have trouble standing on one foot. <laughs> I've seen walruses and seals performing to music. I've seen birds doing somersaults at the command of their trainer. And the list could go on and on. Man has taken the time to train animals to perform at his bidding. I, I think almost every animal I can think of is like that. The point that he's making is this. We can take the most unruly animals, the most vicious animals, and completely tame them. Why can't we do that with our tongue? That's the point. It's an unruly evil. It's a, the first word of verse 8 is but. Oh. So he's going through this whole list of things illustrating what can happen with these you know, small instruments or, or taming animals, but we can't even tame this little member, the tongue. It's full of deadly poison, like a serpent that spits poison into the eyes of its prey when on the attack. Next, in verses 9 through 12, the next section, we use our tongues to bless God and turn around 
and use it to curse men who have been made in the, in the likeness of God. You know, it's a tragedy, and I, I confess that I'm sure I've been guilty of the same thing. I know I have. Where we can, in the morning, be sitting here or standing here and praising God, worshiping God for who He is, for all that He's done for us. Get up from the meeting and walk outside the door and say, hey, do you know what so-and-so did? Do you know what she said? <laughs> you see what she's wearing? Can you imagine that guy coming to church and preaching like that? You know, All this kind of stuff. And we start tearing people down. And, and we've just sung praises to the Lord. James really is saying this. The tongue is unlike anything in nature. No spring pours forth fresh and salt water. No fig tree bears olives. No grapevine bears figs. These things are impossible in nature. Why do they take place in our mouth? Then he goes on in verses 13 through 18 to talk about true wisdom and false wisdom. We're going to have to skip over that because of time here. But at the very end, he talks about a man who is truly wise is a peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So the last, chap the last verse of chapter 3 is dealing with peacemakers. And then we move into chapter 4, verse 1, and we have wars and fighting. Complete contrast. Are, are Christians guilty of starting World War III and throwing verbal punches at each other? Yeah, unfortunately, it's true. It's true. Someone said that the greatest problem on the mission field today is interpersonal relationships. That's probably true at home as well. Interpersonal, just getting along with each other. Fighting and warring and so on. Why do wars and fights come? They come because we want our own way. We desire power. We desire popularity. We desire authority, money, pleasure. The root cause of all of our fighting in the assembly and out is covetousness. The insatiable desire for things that we don't have. And, and James says, look, just ask. Ask, and you will receive. I think of, I think about, um, I think it was David, after his sin with Bathsheba. I may be wrong on the, on the timing of this. I didn't look it up, but... Um, where the Lord said to him, I've given and I've given, was it, was it, was it, I've given and I've given and I've given, and if you'd wanted more, I'd have given you more. And it's not that the Lord is stingy. It's not that the Lord is withholding anything from us that we need. And if we don't have something that we perceive that we need, all we have to do is ask. That's what it says. Ask. And when we do ask, make sure it's with the right motives, too. That he says you you don't have because you, you, you have not because you ask not. And then when you do ask, you're asking with wrong motives. It's just to consume it upon your own lust. Lord, I really need that Maserati. I really do. Because um, I'm usually late for the meetings. <laughs> you, can, you can put a spiritual spin in it somehow, you know. But yeah, it's a car. <laughs> it's a fast car. Yeah. He says adulteresses. Boy, that's strong word. Those are strong words. Just he blurts it out. Adulteresses and adul adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What is an adulteress? It's a married woman who is unfaithful to her husband. She has courted the friendship of another man and has given herself to him. But James isn't speaking about physical adultery here. He's talking about spiritual adultery. We are the bride of Christ. But we flirt with the world and cheat on God. And embracing the world makes us an enemy of God. It's very strong, but that's what he says. What is the cure? In verses 6 through 10, God wants to help you. He wants to help you. The divine side is that his grace is sufficient. He gives you all the help you need if you quit playing the field. The human side is our responsibility in verses 7 through 10, and it requires humility and brokenness on our part. True revival starts with brokenness and humility. And if we want true revival in our own lives and in the life in our assembly, it comes from being broken before God. James talks about two games that we play at the end of this chapter. One is I've titled, I'm better than you are. It starts when we're little kids. I'm better than you are. But we carry it on into this Christian life. The objective of this game is to imagine that you're superior to other Christians. And then you put them down in various ways. What are the rules of the game? Well, you don't control your tongue. You get, to, you get together with others and you pick on someone who isn't there, who can't defend themselves, and you talk about them. Are we talking about Christians doing this? Yeah, he says brethren here. And you see how quickly you can trash that person. That's the objective of the game. How quickly can I trash that person and then move on to the next one? After all, it makes you look better, right? That's the objective of the game. The problem with this game is it places us in the position of judges of other people, of other brothers and sisters. It's a position that is reserved for the Lord, and we've taken his position. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We're asked. You know what? We have enough to do just obeying the word of God ourselves without trying to trash somebody else. Who am I to judge another? And in this sense, it is appropriate to judge not lest you be judged. Here's an appropriate use of that verse. The second game is, I'm the master of my own fate. How do you play this game? Well, you imagine yourself as the final authority in your own life, and then you live in complete independence of God. What are the rules? You select your time, what you will do, when you'll do it, and who will do the activity with you. You decide where you live, where you go. Everything about your life, you have ordered yourself. And uh, you decide where you're going to go, how long you're going to stay, what you'll do when you get there. And you'll decide and even anticipate the outcome, a profit. There are five good reasons not to play this game. First of all, you don't have a crystal ball. I don't believe in crystal balls, but you understand what I'm saying there. In other words, you don't have any idea what is on the calendar for your life tomorrow, do you? Okay. It's not good to play this game then. Second, you have no assurance of a long life. James likens our life to steam. vanishes quickly. It's gone. Third, you have no right to ignore God's will. Not your will, but God's will. You ought to do is find out what the Lord would have you do. And it doesn't mean simply planning activities and say, 
if it's the Lord's will. You know, just adding DV at the end of a sentence. Okay, it really means seeking the Lord's will for your life and then doing it. All such boasting is evil. It's another reason why not to play it. And all such boasting is sin. Another reason not to play it. All right, finally, chapter 5. <clears throat> the future of the rich is seen here in verses 1 through 6. And he talks about the rich. He says, come together, weep and howl because of the miseries that are about to, or that are coming upon you. What is about to happen to them? Well, the Lord is coming back, and they're soon going to meet God. Soon Jesus will come again, and the rich man will see how poor he really is. What is Jesus' attitude towards riches, by the way? He says, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Your riches really are the reward that you, the only reward you will get. It says their riches are corrupted, and their corrosion will be a witness against them. Their moth-eaten garments, their gold and silver have become corroded. Here they are with a gaping hole in their bucket, and the Lord is coming back. You know, the, the church of Laodicea, which I believe is the church age that we're living in right now, is rebuked because of priding themselves in their riches. It says, I, they say, I am rich. I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. But they do not know they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In verses 3 and 4, James gives us a clue as to how they've acquired their wealth. First, they have hoarded wealth. It says, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. It's kind of an illustration, I think, of you know, imagine what it would be like to, to do banking, to uh, be buying stocks and bonds, to be accumulating riches the day before the Lord shut the door of the ark. Wouldn't make a lot of sense, would it? But Jesus is coming back again. How much more foolish it is today knowing what took place in Noah's day, recognizing the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second clue to their gain is found in verse 4. It says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. They have become rich at the expense of those working for them. They have defrauded them of their fair and rightful wages. And these employees or workers cry out to God. And God takes note of this. He hears their cry. No wonder James calls upon the rich to weep and howl for the miseries that are about to fall on their heads. They, they go so far as to condemn and murder the just, he says, and yet they, I think the just, do not resist. The, ju the ju Christians don't resist these unjust practices. Well, there's a future also for those who endure in verses 7 through 12. Just a little longer. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And then he illustrates this by a farmer. He says, um, in a sense, if you're oppressed, if you're suffering, if you're struggling, if you're um, being taken advantage of, here is the hope that the scripture has to offer, and that is Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And all of the wrongs in this world are going to be made right by the only one who can make them right, 
the only one who knows all the details. Therefore, we are commanded to be patient like the farmer waiting for his crop. In the meanwhile, don't grumble. When we are suffering, we, we have a tendency not to have joy, counting on all joy, my brethren, but instead we have a tendency to grumble and complain. And he says not to do that. So, well, you say but this, this trial is, is a trial of um, a great injustice. My needs haven't been served. They're taking advantage of me. Maybe true. But I like to remember something that our dear brother Rob Luce once said, his final devotional at Fairhaven, was the greatest injustice of all is that Jesus died for me. And when we have that perspective in life, any injustices done to us really kind of pale in insignificance, don't they? The greatest injustice of all is that Jesus died for me. Take, for example, he said, the prophets. They spoke in the name of the Lord, and yet, really, they saw very little in the way of reward in this life. But they endured suffering patiently. Well, we have not suffered anywhere near the sort of thing that they suffered. Surely, we can be patient in the little bit of waiting and suffering that we go through in our petty trials. Job, remember him, how he persevered. And yet he, even though he suffered tremendously, he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin with his mouth. <laughs> He's a more righteous man than me. Watch that tongue, verse 12 says. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. In conclusion, he talks about the power of prayer in verses 13 through 18. When afflicted, pray. When cheerful, sing psalms. When sick, pray. When corrupted by sin, pray. As a righteous man, pray. It avails much. Elijah was a man like us, and he prayed. Elijah prayed, and not a drop of water fell for three and a half years. Israel was in a backslidden condition at that time. But when they returned, Elijah prayed again for rain, and the Lord sent it in answer to his prayer. Here was a righteous man whose effective, fervent prayer availed much. Next, 19 and 20, is a rescue mission. If a brother wanders from the truth, like Israel did, and someone turns him back to the Lord, you have saved him from a life of uselessness. You have restored him to his former usefulness, and you've covered a multitude of sins. Well, we've gone through a, <laughs> a huge amount of uh, commands in the book of James. It's a tough one to, um, to uh, outline. But it's a book that is a good starting point for the rest of the studies that we have in the, um, in the epistles. And again, I want you to just take one last look at me. I know I, I'm loathsome to you as, as you sat here and you've put up with me all morning long. But just remember the illustration, and that is that I had a look in the mirror before I came up to the pulpit, and I did nothing about it. Have a look in the mirror this week and do something about it. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we feel in some ways chastised by the things that James says to us. Lord, we are guilty of so many of these things.
so often, Lord, we do not control our tongue. We use it uh, to, to speak praise to you and, and then condemn others. Lord, there's so many ways in which we see ourselves in this mirror of your word. And Lord, we pray that we would not go away simply as hearers, but Lord, that we might be doers of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.